There's an old joke that NATO was created to keep the Americans in Europe, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Successive US presidents complain Europe's NATO members don't spend enough on their own defence, yet seen from the Kremlin, NATO in the past 30 years has aggressively pushed deep into Russia's backyard. Russia's borderlands, therefore, remain a perpetual flashpoint. At times, it seems just one minute to midnight. In recent weeks, uh, we have seen large and unusual concentrations of uh, Russian forces close to Ukraine's uh, borders. Uh, we have real concerns about uh, Russia's unusual military activity on the border uh, with Ukraine. NATO stands with Ukraine. We do not and will not accept Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea. And we call on Russia to end its support for militants in the Donbas. We have uh, seen Russia's playbook many times over. And part of that playbook is to uh, attempt to create uh, and manufacture a so-called provocation as justification for something that Russia is planning to do all along. That tension in the winter of 2021 on the Russian border made every NATO member nervous that Putin would find some pretext to invade Ukraine. Putin feels very deeply that Russia was humiliated in the years after 1989, when under Yeltsin, the West frankly did take advantage of a weak Russia. That's Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts. He chaired the Joint Intelligence Committee when Tony Blair was Britain's Prime Minister and was the British government's first national security advisor from 2010 to 2012. Lord Ricketts believes Vladimir Putin is still haunted by the collapse of the Soviet Union and the expansion of Western-style democracy. NATO and the EU kind of pushed the borders out eastwards, um, bringing in Eastern Europe, which I think was a very good policy to do. But I think in Putin's worldview, that was um, an existential threat to Russia. And I think his number one priority is to stop any further eastward rolling of the borders. And so no way would he allow Ukraine or Georgia or Moldova or Belarus to tumble into the Western camp. I think that's number one for him. Beyond that, uh, yeah, I think he likes, he senses deep insecurity, I think, when he looks towards NATO. Uh, Russia has no allies, really, of any significance. And so keeping us off guard and uh, off balance is the deal, I think. I don't think he thinks of getting his empire back, but he wants his backyard clear of American-led alliances. The result is that Putin treats America and NATO with caution. But his attitude towards the European Union is tinged with contempt. In March, the EU imposed sanctions on two Russians accused of persecuting gays and lesbians and on four senior officials close to President Putin. Russia retaliated, barring eight officials from EU countries. When the EU's high representative, Josep Borrell, protested about the poisoning and jailing of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, Borrell was treated rudely in Moscow and Russia expelled three EU diplomats. It was no secret and the high representative was very clear ahead of the trip to Moscow. The main objective was to deliver firm, unequivocal, clear messages from the EU about the case of Mr. Navalny and about the state of our relations, about Russia's role and behavior in Europe. This was done. In this case, the Russian reaction, by the way, what the Russian authorities did against the European diplomats and against Mr. Navalny on the very same day, I think that offered very clear 
indication in which direction Russia wants to go and our relations. That's a somewhat diplomatic way of saying the trip failed. Even his own colleagues in Brussels made it clear that they thought Joseph Borrell had been humiliated. This is Hilda Voltmans, member of the European Parliament from Belgium, and she was not impressed. Your disastrous visit to Moscow has damaged you personally. But even worse is the damage done to the EU as a whole. We have never looked so weak and clueless about how to deal with Russia. I even fear that our relations with Russia are worse than before your visit, and that's not good. The writer and historian Anne Applebaum argues that successfully undermining the European Union is a key strategic priority for Putin's Russia. The Russian policy towards the EU isn't so much about not taking the EU seriously. It's about a concerted, long-term, dedicated effort to destroy it. They are very interested in breaking up the EU for a number of reasons. One, because the EU they see as the carrier of this liberal democratic set of ideas that they fear. This is why they were so upset in 2014 when Ukrainians you know, marched in their central square carrying EU flags. They also see the EU as a, as a, as a block on their economic aspirations. Um, so whereas they are able to deal one-on-one -on -one with every European country, either as a position of equals, from a position of equals like with Germany, or as the dominating partner, as with you know, Portugal or Lithuania. Um, the, with the EU, they are much smaller and much weaker. Um, and so it is very much in their interest to see the EU break up. And one of the tactics that they use is to continually disrespect, undermine, um, refuse to speak to laugh at any representative of the EU who, who comes across any of their paths. I mean, the Russian foreign minister does this, Putin himself does it. People outside of Russia may not know this, but the Russian television runs almost constant programs mocking and undermining Europe and European countries and the European Union, showing how terrible life is in Europe and how awful it is to live in Sweden or Belgium. And this is a kind of normal part now of, of Russian state propaganda. It's also important to realize that a key element of Russian propaganda is not to convince people of a new truth. It is to spin so many stories that listeners, viewers and audiences are confused about what truth really is, or even if there is a truth. Here's how the KGB view what some call information wars, in the words of a KGB defector of 35 years ago, Yuri Bezmenov, also known as Tomas David Schumann. Exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. Putin's information war, therefore, continues unabated. And it is a war, hybrid warfare, in which Russian propaganda is a key part of the Kremlin's desire to demoralize opponents, in this case by a repeated narrative of a weak and divided European Union. But Putin's weakness is also obvious. 
His own ultimate nightmare would be if European democracies expand further into Russia's borderlands. That's why he's so determined that a successful democratic Ukraine can never join the European Union, and why he lectures NATO countries never to deploy weapons or soldiers in Ukraine, for fear of an unspecified but very tough Russian response. And that's also why Putin has exploited opportunities to strengthen Kremlin relationships with the EU's own Balkan borderlands, Serbia, Albania, Bosnia, North Macedonia, Montenegro and Kosovo. Andreas Kabilius is a former Lithuanian Prime Minister and a member of the European Parliament since 2019. For Putin, success of Ukraine is a danger because if, you know, Russian people will see that really, you know, Ukraine is, 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 is developing itself and is becoming a real European country, that can be inspiration for them to demand the same changes, you know, in, in, in Russia. And for kleptocratic, autocratic regime as Putin created in, in, in Moscow, that is the biggest danger. So that's where, where you know, Europe should, uh, European Union should have very clear vision, you know, what is a Putin strategy and what kind of strategy EU needs to have in order not to allow Putin to win with his strategy. And that is where we see very clearly that, you know, the only one clear strategy what EU needs to, you know, to implement in that region is really to push much more ambitious integration, you know, integration uh, strategy. It's really very pity that EU has ambitious strategy towards Western Balkans. How to integrate Western Balkans with a very clear, you know, philosophy inside of EU, you know, that if EU is not going into that region, if that region is not integrated towards EU, then Russia or maybe China are coming into that region and, and the region will become destabilized. But EU is not, you know, <laughs> is not brave enough to speak the same language, the same philosophy towards Eastern Partnership. That is needed to be changed. Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that, frankly, the Russians don't believe the European Union exists. Mark Galliotti believes Putin's contempt for the European Union in part stems from the EU's failure to agree what to do about Russia itself. They know there is something there with a blue flag and nice gold stars and so forth, but they don't think the European Union as a genuine union exists. They instead regard it as actually just simply uh, an arena in which different powers fight for their own interests. So frankly, the Russians, they want to talk to the Germans. They want to talk to the French. And as we saw when Josep Borrell, the European Union's foreign policy chief, came, they were perfectly happy to publicly humiliate him to make a point, to make a point that, in fact, they didn't really expect that a so-called normative superpower was going to have any real sort of clout with them. So, I mean, the problem is until the European Union actually has some degree of unity on what Russia is, and, you know, one, one, one can look at so many different opinions within the EU as, as to what policy is. The European Commission, the splendidly misnamed External Action Service, its foreign policy arm, they can say what they like to the Russians, but as far as the Russians are concerned, they have no muscle to back it up. And they might be right. Well, so far, they have been absolutely conclusively right. Uh, in terms of NATO, then, I suppose one way of looking at that is at least it's back or the Americans are back or they're credibly back. And then if the key thing is, from the Kremlin's point of view, to have predictability, that's predictable. NATO stands together. That's how we've met every other threat in the past. 
It's our greatest strength as we meet our challenges of the future, and there are many. America is back. I'm not looking for conflict with Russia, but that we will respond if Russia continues its harmful activities. And we will not fail to defend the transatlantic alliance or stand up for democratic values. As allies, we also affirmed our continued support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. Yeah, the interesting thing about NATO is that its strength is also its weakness. Its strength is that it is this phenomenally effective engine of solidarity against direct military threats. And in a way, the Russians themselves appreciate that. I mean, I haven't heard a single Russian questioning, for example, the Article 5 guarantee that says that an attack on one is an attack on all. So they realize that once you're in NATO, you're basically immune from the more obvious and overt kind of pressures, which is one of the reasons why they really want to make sure that Ukraine doesn't join. But on the other hand, what makes NATO strong is precisely that it is focused on a very particular type of threat. You know, it can't deal with all the, the non-kinetic, below-the-threshold sort of challenges. It cannot parachute forensic accountants into a capital city to go and check for corruption. It cannot address in any meaningful way disinformation and so forth. And so that is precisely where organisations like the European Union should be stepping in, where the real battlefield is governance. And unfortunately, because it's not able to do that, it seems, that's why there is a weakness. And that's why the Russians, their real challenges to the West are not to do with tank divisions, but to do with trolls and money and so forth. Keir Giles suggests that Putin's contempt for the EU is in part justified by this group of indecisive democracies being unable to construct a coherent policy towards Russia. Nobody outside Brussels would ever consider that the EU has a meaningful response to the challenge that is posed by Russia. It's perfectly normal for politicians to arrive in Russia thinking that they've arrived in a normal Western European country. If they are sufficiently arrogant to disregard all of the warnings about how Russia is different and requires different handling, then they will be embarrassed and humiliated in exactly the same way that Borrell was. And you see this Time and again, people who are arriving in positions in, in business, in the military, detect that there is a Russia problem and think that they're going to solve it where everybody before them has failed. That's partly a product of perfectly reasonable human optimism that things can't really be as bad as they seem and partly a result of hubris that uh, they think they're going to solve the problem because they're special. But the trajectory, the pattern, the path that they always follow through to disillusion and realizing that actually everybody was right when they warned them about Russia is very predictable and very stable. Now, the EU, of course, as a whole, is weaker because of Brexit when it comes to, to facing Russia. And there are countries that were of a similar mindset to the UK within uh, the European Union who are now feeling let down by the fact that they don't have that relatively strong voice of the UK backing them up. So the EU's overall stance to Russia, toward Russia is even weaker than it was. For the UK, however, of course, uh, there's now the freedom to actually make their own policy 
policy toward Russia. You no longer have, if you're considering sanctions, to be beholden to Brussels and coordinate everything with the rest of Europe. And this is one of the reasons why the the attitude towards potential Brexit in Russia was not as clear-cut as is often assumed. There are not so many obvious and direct advantages to Russia in Brexit, other than obviously the amount of chaos and disorganization that it has caused, because it does leave the UK with its no-nonsense attitude to Russia and its attempts to make robust policy towards Moscow free to do so without actually being constrained by the rest of the EU. I am pessimistic about the future of Russia because we are in that stage of the the fairly stable and predictable historical cycles where things continue to get worse uh, until they reach a breaking point. And in terms of relations with the West and with the rest of the world overall, again, there aren't really any grounds for optimism. The trick will be managing Russia's inevitable slow decline while trying to undergo as few shocks as possible, both domestically and internationally. Former U.S. diplomat Daniel Fried is at least a bit more optimistic. The European Union policy framework toward Russia, in the paper that came out about a month ago, um, under the I think it was entitled Push Back, Constrain, and Engage. Now, that's a very good policy framework, consistent with the U.S. one, if they mean it, if they mean it. But that's a good framework. And there's a lot that we and the Europeans and the U.K. could do, I mean, sort of in a trilateral way, coordinating policy. And I think we should. While the Europeans talk, and Joe Biden thinks more about China, Russia's borderlands are perpetual flashpoints, not just Ukraine, but to the south and east in the Caucasus. Georgia is in in full regime of self-defense against unfounded and totally legitimate aggression from the Russian Federation. Natia Siskuria is from the Royal United Services Institute and is also a native Georgian. She spoke to me from the Georgian capital, Tbilisi, as her country marked the 13th anniversary of the 2008 war with Russia. Since those tragic five days of war, Russia has moved on from using conventional military means to the use of hybrid tools, which is much more cost efficient for the Kremlin and makes it hard for Georgia to fight back and oppose to Russian aggression. Georgia has served as a testing ground for those tools that Russia has been using against the Western democracies during the past couple of years. And the implausible deniability continues. Russia has been firmly identified as a party um, to the conflict. It still attempts to pretend otherwise, as you mentioned, by portraying itself as a peacekeeper and a humanitarian actor in the conflict. Uh, With this approach, the Kremlin wants to normalize its narrative that there are two new uh, so-called independent entities, independent states within the internationally recognized borders of, of Georgia. This has, of course, been condemned by the international community. But despite uh, Moscow's uh, desire to be seen as a peaceful mediator and rejection to identify itself as a party of the conflict, 
Both occupied regions are uh, currently fully subordinated to Moscow and the FSB forces are uh, being present on the ground. Since Russia's recognition of the independence of Abkhazia and the so-called South Ossetia, the Tsinvali region, uh, the Kremlin tried to portray them as independent states, despite the fact that they are within Georgia's internationally recognized borders. This attempt has largely failed due to the international community's uh, support for Georgia's non-recognition policy of occupied territories, as well as uh, ruling by the European Court of Human Rights. The ECHR has ruled that Russia is responsible for for major human rights violations, including murdering civilians, torture, violation of of freedom of movement, liberty and security, and destruction of property. Uh, But Moscow has been also found responsible for torturing Georgian prisoners of war and uh, for the expulsion of ethnic Georgians uh, from their homes. Uh, for the international community, the ECHR's decision is a, is a way to hold Russia responsible for the ongoing violations and human rights abuse on Georgian territory. Cultivating fear is the, uh, in the society is, uh, is also a prominent tool that the Kremlin uh, found useful and effective, both actually domestically and as a foreign policy tool. So I think that Russia's primary goal um, is to keep NATO out and to keep uh, Western, uh, Westernization um, um, up, off the table. Keeping NATO out also means that eventually Georgians could lose their liberty. This is the common fate of, of all of us, of all Europe that is at stake now. And then it's the future of democracy, rule of law, and prosperity in an economic sense, and freedom of choice is upset. Add all this together, and we have a still formidable military power, fearful of Western encirclement, ruled by an authoritarian clique, which is capable of constantly making mischief. Mark Galliotti again. There is no way we can change the essential worldview of the current Russian leadership. As far as they're concerned, they're locked in an existential political struggle for Russia's status as a great power. And we, by not allowing it to be able to flex its muscles and have a sphere of influence and so forth, we are unfairly denying it that. We can totally disagree with this point of view, but that, I think, is genuinely held by Putin and the people around him. So all we can really do is contain the trouble that they can do, modulate the ways in which they act, because they do learn, they do see that some some actions are going to have more of a negative repercussions than others, and really dig in and wait for the next political generation to take over. But we, if you mean the West haven't really got our act together either. I mean, Biden has got many other problems, but he is engaged with Russia. Germany is about to see a change of chancellor and their interest in Russian energy is obviously uh, another bone of contention. And Britain is pursuing a global Britain policy, uh, which doesn't seem to involve actually anything other than offending most of our neighbours. So we have got, we 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 the West have got a problem here, haven't we? There is a definite problem with the West, but I actually think we should accept also that there's been some real progress. I mean, if one looks, for example, quite recently, we had the case in the Czech Republic, where it came to light that back in 2014, there had been you know, a series of explosions that had taken place at an arms depot in a place called Vrbětice, actually was the result of a GRU, Russian military intelligence operation. Now, the Czechs have up to now tended to be, to be blunt, very meek 
with the Russians. And in part, and this is, I remember when I, when I was living and working in Prague, and I was speaking to people within the foreign ministry and saying, look, you know there is this huge intelligence apparat, apparatus in the embassy here in Prague. Why don't you just do something about it? And one of the answers they gave is, look, we know the Russians will push back hard. They always do. And we don't believe anyone of our allies will have our backs. We don't believe that we'll get anything other than thoughts and prayers. Well, they were right in 1938 about that, so perhaps they... they... But this time it was different. They, they first of all felt that you know, they, they had to act. When the Russians pushed back hard um, you know, with, with, with tit-for-tat diplomatic expulsions, and they obviously expected Prague to fold, actually Prague pushed back and kicked out more Russians. It was a very, very striking case of a relatively small country standing up to Russia. And there's a whole variety of reasons, but part of that is precisely because they, they did feel that this time, in visible and not so visible ways, they would have support from their Western allies. And I think this is something that really, and here actually I, I have to, to praise Britain, that really has been a result of the Skripal affair. The mass expulsions that took place after the Skripal affair first of all, really caught the Russians by surprise. It was a very sobering blow. But secondly, it really emphasised this point that, in fact, if you're going to have any kind of meaningful response to the Russians, unless you're the United States, you have to do it in partnership. The financier and political activist Bill Browder, who for a time was a major investor in Russia, now concludes that Western European policy towards Russia is short-sighted and fundamentally incompetent. So the Americans probably should be less concerned about Russia than the Europeans. I mean, the Europeans are, are like on the same continent as the Russians. I mean, you know, Germany is right. You know, it's like one country away. And um, and they're all busy, you know, becoming more dependent on Russian gas by building Nord Stream 2 and, and so on. It, it's everybody is kind of playing their own little, you know, maximization, you know, economic maximization game at the expense of, of uh, global security. Economic maximization is a polite way of saying European countries not only see the benefits of all those billions of rubles invested in Western European markets, high-status properties and luxury consumer goods, but also all those generous donations to political parties. Here's Luke Harding again, the Guardian journalist and author of Mafia State. There's been a realisation for a couple of decades in the Kremlin that... Western politics is a soft end underbelly that you can you can influence. You know, there are good actors in this game, but there are also bad actors as well. And I, I would just say to to the British government, to other Western governments, you know, to update the famous phrase, you know, beware Greeks bearing gifts, be, beware Russian oligarchs bearing gifts, because they may not be quite what they seem. Professor Timothy Snyder is an American historian specialising in Central and Eastern Europe. The whole story goes back to oligarchy. What do the Greeks say about oligarchy? The Greeks say democracy is impossible because oligarchs are going to come along and tell people a fancy story and get them to forget about their own best interests, right? Like that's been a problem from the beginning. And what Mr. Putin is doing is just a fancy globalized version of that. Following the money was the reason we began the big steal in the first place. It's also one of the reasons the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, is still in jail. His team produced the video of Putin's Black Sea Palace, a monument to greed and corruption, with its 47 different handmade sofas, its helipad, private church and tunnel to the beach. The video has been watched almost 100 million times. The palace of a 21st century Russian Tsar and another world from the daily grind of the average Russian. 
Daniel Fried thinks there may be political consequences. The Russian economy has been stagnating. It is a value extracted, not a value added economy. It is dependent on export of raw materials. Putin's system is a corrupt kleptocracy. Living standards have stagnated. Um, Putin's palace that Navalny um, outlined in his wonderful 75-minute, um, it was about 75-minute um, video, doc- video documentary, is known, is known to the Russian people to be you know, an example of kind of you know, wretched excess. Um, you know, Versailles meets Las Vegas. So it's not clear to me that Putin is in such a good position. A lot of Russians are beginning to sound like Soviets did, like Russians did in the early 1980s, saying quietly, we can't go on like this, but they had no idea where things could go. Now, I am not predicting another Gorbachev, okay? History doesn't work like that, okay? But the best way to get to a better Russia, which I think is possible, is to resist the bad set of the bad set mm-hmm. of, of Kremlin policies that we've got now. So, you know, your framework, optimistic scenario, pessimistic scenario, different pieces, that's all nice. I mean, that, that, those are useful points. We don't know. So let's take our assets from the optimistic scenario, take our list of worries from the pessimistic scenario, and work together as much as we possibly can to both push back against Russian aggression and prepare pushback so that Putin knows we're doing it. We ought to start looking at Putin's money men, and we need to do this not in a way that is just directed against Putin's kleptocrats, but to clean up our own financial houses. Why should real estate in London, and for that matter, Miami and New York, Mm-hmm. and in various uh, many places around the European Union, be a vehicle for money laundering for Putin's elite. Why should American LLCs be so secretive? Something, Congress is doing something about that, but not quite enough. And we all need to work on common regulation so that there isn't a single place that can act as a conduit for dirty Russian or other money. This is a way to get back at Putin's system without being necessarily aggressive. If you, if, it's not a sanction, but it is cleaning up our financial act. Now, really, is that an aggressive, you know, how much, how much tolerance of corruption do we owe Putin in the name of stable relations? I mean, take a look at the political piece so you'll know what I'm talking about. Like, seriously? We ought to be going after them. Anne Applebaum agrees that following the money, including the money in Western banks or in the pockets of Western politicians, is one way of controlling Russian mischief-making. You know, I would really like someone to look more carefully at the economics of money laundering. Um, London is famously the capital of it. A huge amount of money flows through London or flows through the accountants and lawyers in the city of London. 
Um, but you know this this economy of um, you know this 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 preserving London as the home of international kleptocrats has also had a terribly damaging effect on Londoners and on Britain more generally. Um, how you know how much of housing in London, not just central London, but all over the city and in the in the surrounding area, has been occupied by international kleptocrats? Um, how much of the housing crisis in London is caused by that? Um, how much of the UK economy is skewed by um, kleptocratic money and investments that aren't real investments? How much of um, what we think of as you know damage caused by globalization is actually very specific and can be linked to um, whether it's Russian or Kazakh or African or Chinese kleptocrats using London and using British property and British companies to store their stolen wealth. There is already evidence that the money which has made Vladimir Putin the richest man on earth may also be his biggest weakness. Earlier in The Big Steel, we reported how Bill Browder's Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered a fraud through which Vladimir Putin's cronies stole $230 million from the Russian state through a complex fraud involving one of Bill Browder's companies. Sergei Magnitsky was then allowed to die from an untreated medical problem in a Russian jail. And in his memory, Bill Browder persuaded the US Congress to pass the Magnitsky Act to crack down on corrupt Russian individuals. Bill told me it's already making a difference. Well, since we last talked, the European Union now has a Magnitsky Act. Um, uh, Australia is on deck for a Magnitsky Act. Uh, New Zealand is on deck. Japan is on deck. The, the UK has now started implementing the Magnitsky Act. Uh, countries are now working together in, in Magnitsky conferences where, where they're using uh, the, uh, Canada, the UK, US, and EU jointly sanctioning people under the Magnitsky Act. And so it's becoming, uh, I would say, almost a, the, the tool to deal with human rights abusers and kleptocrats. The problem is that, that uh, it hasn't been used as the tool on, on Russia as much as it needs to be used. And uh, there's, there's easier targets to go after uh, in the world. It's not just the Russian piece of legislation. There are, you know, the Be- you can go after the Belarus- Belarusians without too much of a cost. Um, but to go after Russian oligarchs is really a, a heavy lift still. Let me put the devil's advocate question, which is, isn't it true that the bad guys can always win because they can always create more shell companies, they can always divide... They, it, one of the things which has happened is they are able to buy some of the best brains in the West to figure ways to get around the rules. And that's always going to happen. That's always going to happen. But I can tell you with 100% certainty, when when a Russian oligarch gets added to the Magnitsky list, it's the most horrible day of that person's life. It really is. It's every, all, all of a sudden, every bank calls and says, your account's closed. All their business partners say, sorry, I can't do business with you. Um, all their friends stop showing up at their house for social functions. All their travel plans get canceled because visas are no longer available. Their private jet can't fly because the avionics use U.S. software. It's really a bad thing for them. I mean, there's no question. And and sure, they can find nominees to hold things for them and try to work around it. But it's they, they, being stuck in their home country, not being able to travel, being treated as an international financial pariah. There's nothing that anyone can can do to make that better. Within Russia, ordinary people know only too well of the life of perpetual bling led by Vladimir Putin and his friends. 
when they compare their own lives in an underdeveloped, relatively poor, yet once great nation where their own government siphons off the nation's wealth, there could yet be serious political consequences, and Putin may require some kind of patriotic distraction. Daniel Fried again. If you look at the Russian economy in particular, it is not a good long-term bet. Um, what's the future of fossil fuels? You know, stable, do you think? Growth industry, do you suppose? Um, what are they going to replace this with? Russians are smart, but they don't get to act on their brain power until they come to Silicon Valley, in which case you know, they do just fine. The Russian system doesn't work for creative creativity. Okay, it is an oligarchic system. Genuine entrepreneurship is difficult. Putin could do something in the Black Sea. He could start another war against Ukraine. He could attack us again. He could conduct more assassinations. Um, but Russia has almost no friends. They tend to alienate people who otherwise would be their friends. I mean, it isn't, it wasn't necessarily the case that Ukrainian national identity would crystallize in a way in opposition to Russian aggression. But Putin made that possible. In Belarus, where national identity is weaker than it is in Ukraine, Belarusian nationhood is taking shape in a democratic form. I'm not saying it's inevitable, but I am saying that it is remarkable that Belarusian society has sustained support for the democratic movement a lot longer than I think Lukashenko expected. No, I don't think he's going to be out tomorrow. But yes, this is a mass movement that would not have taken the shape it did if Putin were not so afraid of democracy. Putinism is not inherently stable because the core, the countries of core concern to Putin do not have, find it in their interest to live in close association with Russia because that association means they must live under corrupt, inefficient re regimes and undemocratic regimes. That is not stable. Daniel Fried there hits on Russia's long-term economic weakness and short-term tactical advantage. Reliance on fossil fuels and natural resources means the Russian economy is more like that of a developing country than a modern European country. Europe is far richer, but not in energy, as Europeans have seen with rocketing gas prices. Vladimir Putin, therefore, has a clear opportunity to, as he puts it, stand ready to help. More than one-third of crude oil imports to European countries and about 70% of national gas imports come from Russia. And Russia could do more. But there is a price, and not just money. Russia wants Europe to accept the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. That new pipeline bypasses the existing route through Ukraine, the country Vladimir Putin has invaded and partly annexed. Nord Stream 2, therefore, simultaneously weakens Ukraine's economy and strengthens the Kremlin's hand on the gas taps. Our series began with the theft of Yukos, Russia's largest oil company, 
And we end this episode with the thought that across Europe, the heating in your home or office, the energy in your factory, even the way you cook your Christmas dinner may be in the hands of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Let's leave the final words here to two influential Russians, both of whom have suffered at the hands of Putin, both of whom love Russia and are optimistic about its long-term future. Vladimir Karamurza is a historian and opposition politician. And Mikhail Khodorkovsky, in some ways, the reason we're here, covering this story. Once the richest man in Russia, Mikhail confronted Vladimir Putin on television for the corruption in the Kremlin. He was then jailed for a decade and now lives in exile in London. Vladimir first. The raging hypocrisy of the Putin regime is that the same people who attack and destroy the most basic norms of civilized democratic society in our country, at home, in Russia, then want to personally enjoy the benefits and the fruits and the privileges that democratic society affords in the West, because that is, this is what, where all their lives are. And this is, of course, enormous hypocrisy on their part. But frankly, it is also enabling on a part of the West that allows them to do this. Because, you know, it takes two to tango. And it's been said that the largest export from Putin's regime to the West is not oil or gas, it is corruption. And I absolutely agree with that sentiment, except, of course, that it is a two-way street. And for someone to be able to export corruption, someone else needs to be willing to import it. And we have seen no shortage of Western banks, Western governments, Western financial institutions, and so on, who are more than willing to look the other way and accept these people in their dirty money. The money that they are stealing from the people of Russia and then coming to stash away in Western countries, Western banks, and Western jurisdictions. This is why for more than a decade now, I have been working on international advocacy for the Magnitsky sanctions, the targeted visa and financial sanctions uh, in the form of visa bans and asset freezes against, not against countries, not against peoples, against specific officials, against specific oligarchs, against specific individuals who are personally engaged in human rights abuses and corruption in our country, in Russia, and for that matter, in any other authoritarian country in the world. Does, does that, that work? Does that work, though, Vladimir? I mean, in the sense that the people you're dealing with, as you've described them, they are, many of them, former intelligence agents. They're very smart. They can always think of a front company and they can distance themselves at several removes so that the money comes from, you know, goodwillenterprises.com or something, rather than one of those people. In other words, the Magnitsky Act does plug some holes, but it's it's clearly not enough, is it? Well, first of all, uh, I think the the best way to judge its effectiveness is by the reaction of the people who are targeted by it. And I've seen this reaction twice. This is what we've just been talking about. The reason I was poisoned and nearly died on both occasions was because of my advocacy and my work on the Magnitsky sanctions. There's never been any doubt in my mind, but now this has been confirmed by the Bellingcat investigation. Um, so I think that that in its own is a, is a strong argument. Secondly, when you talk about shell companies in France, of course, I should have made this more clear. We're talking about the specific individual sanctions. If you are Oleg Deripaska and you are personally forbidden to come and use your lavish mansion in Washington, D.C., what are you going to do? Snap on a fake beard? Change your name? No, that's the point of personal sanctions. They are personal. And you can have all the billions in the world. If you can't go and use them, what's the use of them? And this is what these sanctions, uh, this is how these sanctions operate. The problem with the Magnitsky sanctions so far is that they haven't been implemented to the full extent. 
you know, we've, we've been talking about Alexei Navalny. In January of this year, when Alexei Navalny returned back home to Russia and was arrested, his colleagues, his associates, presented a list of 35 key individuals around Vladimir Putin, high-ranking officials, oligarchs, and so on, who should be targeted uh, by these individual sanctions mechanisms. It has been several months since then, and most of the people on that list are still freely able to travel on both sides of the Atlantic. So the problem is not the principle of the Magnitsky sanctions. The problem is the lack of proper implementation. Because to this day, shockingly to me, and astonishingly, frankly, after everything that Vladimir Putin has done over his two decades in power, there seem to be people in high positions in Western capitals who still harbor some sort of illusions about cooperation or partnership with him. And so they do not want to go full swing with these individual sanctions, not to anger Putin, I suppose, which, you know, to me is, is a pretty lame argument uh, if you're a government of a Western democratic nation. But just, you know, just a few days ago, there was a big publication in, in political newspaper in Washington uh, that detailed the thinking of some, for example, of the senior officials of the Biden administration in the US of why they are not deliberately not using these personal sanctions to their full effect. So the problem is not the sanctions themselves, certainly not the principle. The problem is deliberately inadequate implementation and that what needs to be addressed. I just wondered uh, from the people that you talk to and that you meet, I mean, how how battle weary are they? Uh, because this is a lot, you're, you're absolutely right that history constantly surprises and things can go very quickly. But at the same time, it's an, an extremely long struggle and it does seem to take its toll out of people, out of their private lives and, and just being tired, frankly, with the system. And of course, tired is not the worst that can happen to people who oppose to the Putin regime, as, as, as you and I both know well, that's the subject of our conversation today. I just want to say that um, perhaps my biggest source of inspiration is those young people that despite the dangers and the threats and the arrests and the expulsions from universities and the sackings from their jobs and, and everything that, that the Putin regime has been wielding against them, who continue to go out and demonstrate all across the country, as we saw, for example, at the beginning of 2021, um, after the arrest of Alexei Navalny, when hundreds of thousands of people, mostly young people, uh, went out onto the streets all over Russia, literally from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific Ocean, uh, from Kaliningrad to Kamchatka. This is no longer just about Moscow and St. Petersburg, as it has been so often in Russian history before. This is nationwide. And what I think is really important about this movement is how young it actually is. Uh, there were some SNAP surveys conducted at the January 2021 protests, and it was found that the median age uh, of the people who participated in those protests was 31. So these are the people who are just beginning their adult professional lives. They are the future of Russia. Vladimir Putin is not. Um, we try not to, uh, again, going back to, to your, this question and your previous question, you know, we try not to spend our time thinking about what the future might hold. That's not the point of this. We do this because it's the right thing to do. I spent 15 years of my life working alongside Boris Nemtsov. It was the greatest honor of my life to have worked together with him. Uh, everything I achieved in politics, I owe to him. And the key principle by which he lived and which he tried to teach and pass on to those of us who are around him, you know, was this old principle that came from 
19th century French literature that was brought into Russian cultural discourse by Tolstoy, do what you must and come what may. Do what you must and come what may. We're not thinking about the dangers, we're not thinking about the risks, we're also not thinking about the benefits and the, you know, whatever else. I mean, not that there are many benefits to being in opposition to Putin and Russia today, but the point is we are doing this not for some calculation for the future, but because we feel it is the right thing to do. And we know that there are millions of people in Russia who share our vision for Russia to become a normal, modern, democratic European country where people's rights and freedoms, where people's dignity is respected. Um, and, and we know that there are millions of people in Russia, uh, mostly young people who fundamentally reject everything that Vladimir Putin's regime represents, both in the domestic repression and the external aggressiveness and the astonishing level of corruption and nepotism that they have brought to, to our life. Um, we know this, and for the sake uh, of, of, of these people, and for the sake of the future of our country, we have to continue, and we will. I am confident that the Russian civilization is just a branch of the tree of European civilization. There are two branches of the same tree, and I think we're doomed to carry on developing in parallel or together for centuries. We have done that for centuries and it will continue being the, the case. Yes, Putin has taken away about 40% of the Russian GDP, uh, if you talk about the impact on Russian society over the past 20 years. They could have had plus 40%, they don't have it. And yes, Putin has thrown back the Russian society, Russian society to the level uh, of 1984. And it is very sad because Russian society could have been much closer to European values and Europe, European uh, achievements than it is now. And it's very sad. But the common direction is the same as the West. And I think if we look at long term, much more globally in terms of history, we can see that the main trends have survived. Because if you look at, the, at society, you can see that it's get, becoming more humane. You can see that there is greater recognition of all kinds of minorities. Slowly but surely it's happening. And the mobility, both geographical mobility and mobility of ideas, is taking place. The one thing I'll take from our conversation is this idea that Putin is just a leaf on a branch of European civilization and eventually the leaf will fall. I mean, look at that leaf. He's already yellow, covered with spots. One big thing we've learned throughout this series is that only a fool would predict what happens next in Russia and with Russia. What we do know is that British intelligence, MI6, and American intelligence, the CIA, and other intelligence agencies are redirecting much of their efforts towards the rise of China. But with estimates of anything up to 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukraine border, the prospects of a major ground war in Europe for the first time since 1945 cannot be ignored. Would the EU and NATO stand idly by? And if Russian gas supplies to Western Europe are yet another card in Putin's hand, can Europe play a trump card by cutting energy dependence on such an unreliable partner? In the end, however, the fate of Russia and of Putin is in the hands of the Russian people.
They have suffered much, endured much. But in the words of Russia's greatest writer, Leo Tolstoy, patience is waiting, not passively waiting, that's laziness, but to keep going when the going is hard and slow. That is patience. The two most powerful warriors are patience and time. And time and economic reality are not on Putin's side. From all of us on the Big Steel production team, thank you for listening. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Essler, and produced for Fresh Air Production by Martin Points Roberts. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.